a new era is upon us and Tangent is back with a new limited series hosted by venture capitalist Jeffrey Berman and me, PropTech entrepreneur Edward Cohen. Tangent unites PropTech founders, real estate investors, urban leaders and passionate creators who are improving our cities and quality of life. Join us to learn how we can solve the present day challenges in our communities with innovative technology and greater collaboration. We'll examine diverse issues through interviews and conversations where going off on a tangent is encouraged, hoping to help you become a more nuanced thinker and find comfort in data. If you are working on a PropTech solution, a nonprofit, or a small business that makes our cities better and would like your mission featured on our features segment, please email us at tangentcommunity at gmail.com. Hi, welcome to Tangent. I'm Edward Cohen. Today on Tangent, we have Imran Nurani, Chief Strategy Officer and Co-Founder at Peak Power, a Canadian company that is putting commercial and industrial buildings at the center of the clean energy revolution. Hi, Imran. Where does this podcast find you? Um, hey, Edward. I am calling in from Toronto. Um, good old Canada. Good old Canada. Apparently the center of the clean energy revolution. Yeah, if you, if you want to talk innovation, this is the place to scout. Um, this is where there's a really good innovation ecosystem. I've been reading lots about uh, what Canada is doing and we're definitely going to dive into that. Lots to learn. But uh, before we dive into peak power and everything you're doing to help uh, real estate owners achieve their net zero goals, uh, love to learn more about your background. Uh, how did you how did you get to peak power and what uh, what's driving this this mission to decarbonize uh, real estate? I guess I had always been attracted to electricity. I um, I grew up. I was born and raised in Dubai, which is you know the highest uh, per capita usage of energy uh, that you'll find in the world. And I spent all my summers on the island of Zanzibar, which is actually where my parents uh, are born and raised. And so uh, it was a complete juxtaposition because the island of Zanzibar is powered uh, with basically an underwater cable for electricity, and it's rationed. And you can imagine, you know, as a young child, I would go with my Game Gear, my Game Boy, and think about how. going to get this thing charged and so i started thinking about electricity infrastructure from a very young age just by virtue of really just travels and uh, and being lucky enough to be born uh, in the eastern world and so when i decided what i'd do for my career really it was a sort of decision you know do i want to be a jack of all trades or a master of none you know management consulting route or do i want to really specialize in something and i had interviewed at the time the ceo of the ontario energy board the regulator here and he said look you know what you're doing is really interesting would you come work for the regulator and build an economic price forecast because that's what i was interviewing him for i was building a regression model uh, to forecast the prices of oil and he said you should definitely try to do this for electricity and that's really how my career began so it began on the regulatory side Uh, then I switched into the utility world. Then I switched into the private world. I was buying and selling energy companies, amalgamating them. And I really got bored after a certain point because it was the old infrastructure. But I knew that times would change. I knew that an environmental agenda was coming that would link electricity and the environment together. And that's really what I focused my career on for the balance of, you know, sort of where I'm in right now. And peak power really just sort of came about because we had a thesis that you know batteries buildings and electric vehicles collectively would be the new emerging asset classes of things that would change the way uh, we think about electricity infrastructure and the way we think about the environment and so that's why we began peak really we began it to show that these emerging distributed energy resources as we call them can really fundamentally change the way we view our built ecosystem 
so it would change the way we view a building. It would change the way we view an electric vehicle. And that's really where we are now. Fascinating. I mean, from uh, motivation to charge your Game Boy to uh, buildings becoming the, the key to clean energy revolution. That's quite the track. Um, let's break it down. So in terms of buildings becoming this, this key to unlocking a carbon neutral or a net zero future, how is peak power tackling uh, the problem uh, that we have with our grid and the problem that we have with our inefficient, uh, antiquated energy structures? So I'll touch on a couple of concepts. Number one, our energy systems are traditionally one directional. So if you think about, you know, just a generating station, even if it's solar for that matter as well, right? Or natural gas being, you know, the primary sort of dominant nuclear, etc. The one directional flow of electricity means that you really want to place like a plant outside the city and it's not going to be placed inside. And so we, we overlook the latent capacity of what is in our built environment, right? But the electricity infrastructure and the way we view it has been changing because we've started adding solar and wind into the mix and we've been adding it at people's houses. So what we call distributed energy resources, now all of a sudden, you know, your house that used to be a one directional user of energy is now simply also generating electricity and using. And so it's becoming bi-directional. And similarly, buildings are now emerging as a solution because they're in congested environments. They're in downtown cores. You know, you're in New York right now. Uh, just look around you. I can see, you know, from the window, uh, there's four buildings that I can see just in this small little narrow window, right? And so imagine now that buildings were bi-directional and imagine what solution they could have provided if they were also generating energy or providing energy in some form of, or, or, or fashion. And think about what could have happened this year in Texas or California. When we had the grid go down, buildings would have been a resilient resource. It would have been your army that you could tap into and it could be deployed uh, wherever you need energy in, in, in high congestion areas. And so that's really what we've been doing at Peak Power is we've been unlocking the latent potential. We've been turning buildings into bi-directional grid resources. So a building can have, I, I really like to call it in multiple forms of storage. So you can you can retrofit a building with, uh, with traditional storage. And so when the grid is SOSing or it's having these moments of like peak demand, as we call it, you can just deploy the battery from the building, put it through the meter and it goes back into the grid. And the building meter is quite a big one, right? Because obviously it's, it's using a lot of energy or, or it's processing a lot of energy. You could also put mobile storage in the form of electric vehicles. So you could have, I mean, everyone's putting chargers into their commercial buildings right now. Well, those chargers can also be bi-directional and electric vehicles can also be bi-directional. There are a few bi-directional electric vehicles on the market like Nissan, Mitsubishi, uh, Ford, Volkswagen will make their announcements for next year as well. So more and more you'll start to see bi-directional electric vehicles as well. And the building can also perform a type of service that I really think of like a synthetic battery. So when we think of traditional energy efficiency, you can change the way a building uses energy at specific times. You can target a reduction at specific peak demand moments so that the grid won't go into a fritz state. And the best part about all of this is this is tackling the dirty sectors, right? Building, transportation, and even better than that, by offering these grid services, you're actually getting paid. So you're actually getting paid to do well for the environment. And that's the part that excites me the most. Right. So you're, you're not only uh, making these buildings, the consumption of their energy more efficient, but you're also 
giving back while also monetizing excess energy that you're storing in these batteries, uh, correct? You got it. Okay, trying to, to see uh, if we all understand here. Um, but let's talk about, you mentioned some of the economic and environmental benefits here. So let's talk about uh, peak power uh, solutions uh, that you enable commercial building owner and operators to unlock economic and environmental benefits, not only for them, but also for the community around them. How do those work? Yeah, sure. So when, you know, I mentioned the concept of peak demand, really what that is, is, is it's moments when the grid is using the most. And if you think about it, you know, that's typically in the morning when everyone's waking up, you know, turning on their coffee machines, etc. Or it's in the evening when people are coming home from work, turning on their electric stoves, uh, turning on their dishwashers, etc. So these peak moments, we don't have enough generation capacity to support, you know, all of the peaks because it's like being overbuilt, right, just for these two extra hours or four extra hours. Uh, what the grid actually does is when it needs that urgent energy, it'll typically burn it in the form of fossil fuel. So natural gas, because you can burn it quickly and get instantaneous energy. Coal is the same. We've banned coal in many jurisdictions around the world, but that's fundamentally the purpose of it. Because, you know, things like nuclear, you, you can't turn it on or turn it off easily. You've got to let it run. So that becomes kind of your base load. So it's really for this peaking moments that the most dirtiest fuels are used. And mm, we're just for the trying volatile, to it. When there's it, peak demand, be volatile, okay. You got it. And what we call that volatility is uh, intermittency, is what we call it in North America. And in Europe, we call it flexibility. Really, it's it's the same word, right? Flexibility, volatility, you know, talk to anyone who's, who's trading stocks, and uh, I'm sure they'll have a different opinion. It's not the same word. But fundamentally, it's, you know, something similar, right? And so there's actually payments that the grid will make. And the grid will pay you for this flexibility service. It'll pay you for being even available in some cases, just being a part of the solution, whether or not you provide it, just being there, they'll also make you a payment for as well. So what we're doing is, is we're turning buildings into these resources so that they can participate in the right type of flexibility service. And so, for example, you know, on average, the grid offers about five to seven types of flexibility revenue opportunities. And all of them have a huge environmental impact at that time because that's offsetting fossil fuel. And so you have this societal benefit because it's not just about like reducing consumption in your building. It's about reducing consumption for your whole neighborhood. So I'll give you an example. An average building will save 27 tons of carbon dioxide equivalent uh, equivalents, a 250,000 square foot building from just investing in energy efficiency on an annualized basis. Just by offering peak demand services for 20 hours a year, you take that 27 tons and you increase it to 83. So it has this hockey stick effect because you're benefiting your neighbors as well. So there's this wonderful societal benefit as well. Fascinating. I mean, and I, this also relates directly to one of Peak Power's uh, values and also one of Tangent's values, which is uh, collaboration. And in this case, uh, you're not only making your buildings more efficient, but you're also uh, providing the community around you with uh, with more efficient uh, and cleaner forms of energy. Uh, so if I understood correctly, the public utility companies or, or the local governments are paying uh, companies to uh, store energy or to provide energy when there's peak demand? Yeah, so today we have the infrastructure. Um, there was an order by the federal energy regulator in the US. It's called FERC Order 2222. And it basically allows, and that passed during COVID, so September 20, 
uh, September 20th, 2020 was when it passed. And what it told every state was, it told every state's electricity grid operator, it said, you have 270 days to respond, but tell us how you'll allow batteries, buildings, and electric vehicles to participate in your wholesale electricity markets. So that order allowed all of the smaller assets to be able to come online, whereas traditionally it would be like a large plant. And they made it more cost-effective as well. So that was the first change. And then obviously now with the passing of the ITC, you know, if FERC Order 2222 was the spark, I think uh, this is like the fuel that, that's just being poured on top because it makes it more, uh, you know, in addition to Section 179D, in addition to the ITC, the investment tax credits, it's now really uh, good to invest in these uh, flexibility solutions as well. Okay, just for uh, our audience that are not familiar, Section 179D, correct me if I'm wrong, Imran, but that's part of the Inflation Reduction Act uh, that allows uh, commercial building owners to claim tax credit deductions uh, for clean energy initiatives or retrofits, energy efficient uh, retrofits? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you've got you've got a whole slew of things happening, right? You've got, you know, tax benefits for uh, investment in um, energy resources like batteries, it's up to 30%. You've got tax incentives, uh, $1.88 a square foot to invest in energy efficiency equipment, for example. And then additionally as well, you've got like local law 97, uh, coming out as well, um, which basically makes it so that if you don't do these investments, you get penalized. And the penalty actually, then you just, instead of paying a penalty, you can also just commit that you'll, you'll spend that on energy efficiency. So it's actually a really good incentive mechanism to start to change the way we think about buildings. The, the, the groundwork is there. That, that's why I like to call it the fuel, you know? So it's a little bit simplistic in my opinion. If, if building owners are not thinking about it now, you know, um, and not thinking about like what the future potential of their building can be and look at it just as, oh, you know, I'll invest in energy efficiency. They'll miss out the whole revenue generation opportunity. Right. Yeah, I think that's that's a great way of framing it. It's not you have the carrot and the stick like it's not that you have regulations and that you might get penalized or that your building uh, might not be as efficient to operate or as competitive in the base market but also uh, you get a lot of uh, incentives that you are missing out that you could improve your bottom line and your operations overall. Say goodbye to inefficient scheduling processes, inconsistent images, and lackluster marketing performance. Whether you market one listing a year or thousands, Virtuance is your go-to real estate photographer for consistent magazine quality images that are scientifically proven to get results. With Virtuance's online scheduling, fast delivery, and world-class service team, you'll love the time you save while crushing your revenue goals by partnering with Virtuance for your real estate marketing needs. Virtuance is one of the fastest growing real estate photography and visual marketing companies in the world. Creator of HD Real, an image processing system that combines master photographers with machine learning algorithms, Virtuance helps real estate professionals win more listings and sell them faster with images proven to capture twice more attention. Experience Virtuance's HD Real images and other visual marketing solutions by visiting virtuance.com. That's V-I-R-T-U-A-N-C-E dot com or by emailing info at virtuance.com. Let's talk about specific uh, asset classes, portfolio size. What would be the, if there's a, a commercial or industrial uh, building operator listening right now, what would be the ideal size or the ideal asset class to 
uh, pursue energy uh, storage through batteries uh, and, and work with peak power? Yeah, sure. So I think about, generally speaking, it's the 250,000 square foot plus buildings that are currently the most cost effective with the passing of the with the passing of the ITC it's it's a good return on investment the unlevered IRRs are in like the you know 10 to 15% depending on what jurisdiction you are in the US just wonderful right so any any building owner operator looking at these internal projects goes oh wow okay this is really, really good. It passed our, our, our stress test. For the smaller, let, let, let's call them class B buildings, you know, and you know, sort of the 150 category range, there is still emerging opportunities. It's just the IRRs are not that high yet. So I would assume that in about two to three years, we will start to see more cost-effective deployment. Like I'll give you an example. You've got a lot of solutions coming out now at the residential level for like bi-directional electric vehicles, as an example the cost of those chargers are going to become so so much cheaper that once they hit the sort of parity point, the class B buildings will be, you know, in the mix as well. But for now, it's just because it's the early days, the larger class A buildings are the solutions. And then of course, in your commercial and industrial sector, you know, your typical mush, the, univers- the municipality, university, school, hospital sector, that space is also starting to look um, very much at these opportunities now. Fascinating. I mean, on one hand, like, I think that the term ESG uh, was officially coined around 2005. Uh, we, we've known about greenhouse gas emissions, you know, for decades now. But it, it does seem, or at least the momentum—I don't know if in the media and also the regulatory momentum—but it seems like it's finally uh, we're finally getting getting to the action part of uh, really moder- modernizing and and future-proofing uh, our buildings. But uh, certainly, there's there's still a long way to go. Like, let's take a step back. Like, you know, we, we're trying to solve here for our problem, but, but how are buildings generating uh, carbon emissions? Like, does it come from standard operations? Is it just renovations that we do or just that uh, their, their power system is so antiquated that uh, it doesn't support current operation levels? Yeah, I think, you know, let's forget about the carbon that goes into the building of a building, basically, right? So if if we avoid that conversation just for now, you know, we're really just talking about the operations and usage of a building, right? And really, that's what we're counting uh, these days, right? Like um, scope three is basically what we call it, right? Scope two and scope three. And fundamentally, the building, like the largest energy draw is going to come from the HVAC system and then followed by the lighting system. And this is where you're going to see majority of your usage. And, you know, a building owner operator is really just balancing for the for their net operating income, right? It's a function of, you know, can you help me increase my rent? So I'm increasing my revenue, but then lower all of the OPEX, right? And so even within that equation, investments in energy efficiency pay in the reduction of OPEX, but also pay in the increase of your rentability, because you're viewed as a better building. Like if you're lead accredited, for example, you can charge higher rent and you'll also attract higher marquee clients, you know, uh, that believe in this, you know, Microsoft for, as, as being an example, you know, they will only go into buildings that follow an ESG mandate as an example, right? So, you know, having having things, having investments in energy efficiency and having investments in new emerging technologies like batteries as well helps to get you not only those points, but then it also helps to get you a reduction in your OPEX so that your building is performing in the best way. In addition to that as well, what's really interesting is is when you're making these investments, you're also making them at a new technological point. 
And so, you know, if you think about uh, lighting, right? Like if you were to do lighting upgrades, you know, 20 years ago, you, there would still be filament, right? But now we're doing LEDs and everyone's familiar with that, you know? But now you're getting to the point where you've got dimmable, controllable LEDs. So even if you think about, you know, hey, I need to reduce at peak demand, you know, you could be investing in technologies that allow you to do that with the push of a button so that you dim the lights by 10% during a peak demand moment and you generate $10,000 from flexibility services from the grid at the same time. And so even when you thought about like, oh, you know, my energy efficiency payback used to be uh, three years for lighting as an example, actually you could expedite that to like a year um, based on revenue that you can generate from the grid, but also based on the passing of the ITC and things like that too. So the time hasn't been better, you know, we're, we're really lucky to be at this space. I think the other thing I'll mention as well, because you talked about ESG, it's one of my favorite topics, but you know, the REIT sector, like the real estate investment trust sector, and all of the people investing have also changed their agenda, right? So it's not just about like clients asking what your ESG mandates are, it's people buying, um, buying buildings. So, you know, one of my best friends here, he, he leads um, the sustainability arm of TrioVest. It's one of our largest REITs here in Canada. And we were chatting and, you know, he was basically saying, I'm looking at my portfolio and I'm trying to determine which of my assets are going to be considered dirty because my ESG mandates coming from my investors requires me to do so. And I said, you know, if you've got dirty buildings in your portfolio, quote unquote, then look at what efficiency upgrades you can do and whether a conversion of the building is worth it in this environment or do you divest of that asset? You know, so it's a different way of looking at it because normally we would look at just like a financial divestment rate of return. Now, uh, real estate investment owners are actually saying, oh, if it's dirty, I might get rid of it. That's, uh, that's fascinating. I, I was actually at the ABS East uh, in Florida a couple of weeks ago, asset-backed securities conference. And when they were comparing uh, ESG approaches or ESG investment approaches in Europe versus the US and Canada, uh, it seems like in, in the US and Canada, it's more investment driven. Uh, whereas in Europe, uh, they're taking more of a top-down approach uh, overlaying the industry with, with guidelines and frameworks. And also in, in Europe, it, the, the E from the ESG, the environmental side, seems to be more leading uh, the conversations more, whereas in the US, it's more the S, the social aspect, you know, affordability uh, and, and just what, what it's doing for its communities around it. So I think peak power is, is at the center of, of those two. You know, I, I would actually love that under the ESG framework, they start to look at innovation. You know, because it would really be beneficial to recognize uh, REITs that are so forward looking, you know, like 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 we have another REIT here that was one of the largest. It's called Dream. And they're one of the most innovative in the world, you know, and they aren't being given the benefit under the ESG framework for the wonderful work that they do. But I'll give you an example, you know, in 2018, that's, you know, so many years ago now. They were the first to pilot with us this concept that you can use electric vehicles as bi-directional grid resources. And through that pilot, we started generating $8,000 a car in revenue in grid services per year. Per car. Per car. I mean, that's a really large number. The equivalence in New York is estimated to be between $2,000 to $4,000. Ontario is a different market, right? Like different markets pay different for different flexibility services. But still, that's a very large number. And... 
dream, you know, it was it was a rough project, right? Like we got we got seven point six million dollars from the Canadian government to do this as an innovation fund, and Dream was the first one to say, "Yep, we're interested. We will let you, you know, turn our our, our building into a, into a little dummy test pilot." And they gave us two giant buildings in the downtown core in Toronto. And uh, these are, you know, like like Class A buildings that are really, really well known. And we put in this pilot into the building and it, it was really hard, right? Because you're figuring out like engineering work, you're figuring out the chargers, you're figuring out how it connects to the grid and talking to the utility and saying, hey, we're doing this really different thing. But Dream was so patient during the entire time. And the recognition that I think builders should receive for some of this really you know strong innovation work should come out of the ESG framework so I really wish that in the future we start to see an improvement to how we view ESG overall from a point system that's a point well taken and good example in terms of uh, financing and partnering you know finding the right stakeholders either on the public sector or private I, I read about your fascinating project uh, where you did a revenue share model uh, here in New York with Con Edison providing funding. Uh, how did that go about and, and how can we have more of those uh, across the board? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is the thing about the clean tech revolution is people want to fund it. And the reason why is not only because you've got, you know, Mark Carney from the international, the IPCC, the International Pan- Panel on Climate Change, you know, publicly stating that we'll need $3.5 trillion investments per year, and this could be the greatest investment opportunity. You know, it's everyone's recognizing that with the passing of the ITC, you know, with all of the legislation, there's a whole industry here that will benefit. So the amount of funding that is flowing to the space is actually quite considerable. So if, for example, you have a building and you want incentive dollars, there is a mechanism for that. Con Edison provided $250,000 on a $1 million capex. What we did in the project is we turned four buildings owned by GHP Realty into a virtual power plant. And the funding actually didn't come from GHP Realty. The incentive came from Con Edison, but the batteries and the different energy efficiency investments that were made actually came from a third-party Kruger. And it's actually a Canadian company, a a tissue paper company, and it came from across the border. And so GHP Realty is basically making a payment and it's got this, uh, it's, it's receiving a payment for having the privilege of these assets on its facilities. It's getting all the benefits, but it didn't actually have to spend a dime. Alternatively, there are some uh, building owners that want to spend the money. They want to spend on the improvements and they want to own the environmental attributes. So in that situation, you know, that model works. But the amount of funding, you know, it's so funny. I was at the RE Plus conference a couple of weeks ago in California. And with the passing of the ITC, a lot of people who typically invest in this space were saying, you know, at this conference alone, I just got a $50 million check. I got a $100 million check because people are saying do more. And here's money. It's the large institutional investors saying we have to deploy money and we can't deploy it fast enough. So there are various business models. uh, And I will reiterate that, you know, is if building owners can't fund it, there is a business model for it. If they want to fund it, there's a business model for that, too. That's a that's a good problem to have funded yourself and realize the benefits yourself or partner up and uh, get funded while you get the environmental benefits long term. Let's talk a bit uh, going forward, the future. Where does peak power go in, in the next five years? Yeah, so 
it's probably a geographic expansion more than anything that we're focused on. So right now we're focused on expanding within the U.S., right? So we're in California, we're in New York, we're in Boston, Massachusetts, we're in the Pennsylvania, Jersey, Maryland uh, electric grid as well, that, that corridor. Um, and we're starting to just basically deploy a lot more within these jurisdictions. We're looking a little bit, you know, into other markets like Mexico is a good example. It has some opportunity. Texas, you know, is always on is, is always on the radar. It's just it's the wild, wild west out there, you know. So, uh, you know, literally. Yeah. And, and you know, those people that uh, are willing to be a little bit riskier, there's a lot of reward in that market, too. But it is a separately connected grid. It, it, it's, it's, it's its own grid. So, so there's challenges associated with that. But there's lots of opportunity in that market, you know. So we're evaluating whether we we have the right risk profile to be in uh, in a market like that. And uh, we're also looking uh, overseas, right? So we've been talking uh, with the Japanese folk for quite a quite a few years now and are you know trying to think about what our applicability there is um, from a building perspective that that's where the largest fit is uh, from electric vehicle perspective um, the Scandies like you know sort of Norway Finland etc that's where we're looking at from a market perspective yeah you know so so there's a lot of opportunity I think where we'll be in the next five years is really starting to see more geographic deployment around the world and really taking a more stronger position on what we call environmental optimization. So, you know, most of this is all about maximizing the revenue potential, but we want to be able to allow the customer to choose. Do I want to maximize revenue or do I want to maximize environment and at what percentages and allow them to fine tune our algorithms that are working in the back end. I think you know this uh, geographical expansion will also help reaching a common terminology uh, standardization across asset classes and across geos because uh, you know I, I read articles, listen to panels, and there we we still seem to have issues like agreeing on what is sustainable or what is achievable. Like we have these goals by 2030. I think uh, just last week you, the European Union propose that by 2030 all new buildings uh, will have to be net zero and by 2050 existing supply as well uh, whereas here in the US we have we have different goals and, and different ways of measuring so peak power expanding internationally uh, will, will hopefully lead the, the way in, in standardizing you know in having common goals common terminologies and and also applying them to what is needed across jurisdictions because like you said uh, you know Texas, the, the risk appetite to, to enter that market with their particular grid system and, and the type of uh, developments they have there uh, might be a little different, but there's even more to more gains to, to realize there. Um, Canada, let's talk about Canada. I mean, everywhere I read about ESG or about uh, climate-friendly solutions for buildings, Canada is on the headlines. So what, what, what is Canada doing right that other countries and, and cities around the world can, can learn from? I think, you know, when I look at what Canadians are doing correctly, it's that we have the formula of innovation correctly. There are other parts of the equation that we don't have correctly, and it provides opportunity for American companies. But generally speaking, Canada is very good at innovation. And we have a model, a successful model that we draw upon, right? Like what we do in terms of medical innovation, health tech is actually very advanced. So we've always been the leader in things like cancer research, virology, etc. I'm very upset that we didn't find um, the cure for COVID. We were so close in Winnipeg, you know, but so uh, close. Or, 
Yeah, or, 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 the, or the vaccine, sorry, not, not, not the cure. But, uh, you know, the reason is, is because our innovation ecosystem is really well defined here. Obviously, we are a higher taxed economy. But, you know, the only comparison that I would make for someone who invests this much is Switzerland. Switzerland is probably the, the only other jurisdiction in the world that com- compares with Canada in a meaningful way. And what Canadians did really well is we started to recognize that we could also innovate in the energy, in the energy space. So, you know, climate tech and clean tech have all started emerging. And, you know, we are 70 cents on the U.S. dollar. Right. So even if you look at the spur of our technological sector, it actually happened because of Americans coming uh, and hiring our staff here. You know, so when you think about Silicon Valley, right, the tech talent got tapped out pretty quickly and got too expensive. Then, you know, Seattle was the next market. The market after that was actually Vancouver in Canada. And then they came to Toronto. You know, and so, you know, now as a Canadian company, you're trying to hire people in the tech sector. It's really expensive, you know, because of, you know, sort of this this feedback loop, which is really it's 30 percent cheaper for an American uh, company to come here and hire the talent. But what they did is, is they recognized because we've got wonderful universities as well, uh, like Waterloo and, you know, University of Toronto that really has wonderful tech programs and you've got you know the ex blackberry etc coming out of this ecosystem right so they recognize that, that that canadians had something from a tech perspective and it started morphing into climate and morphing into energy and that was expedited by investments in very strategic thinking by the canadian government so we have wonderful programs like sustainable development technology canada i just got a grant from them um, announced just a couple of weeks ago it's five million dollars and it's five million dollars which is a, a significant amount of money and it's for platform development of our environmental optimization as i mentioned you know allowing a customer to choose that's what Sustainable Development Technology Canada paid for and deploying the funding under a climate and a resiliency lens, which is very, very good. You know, I think that in the U.S., you don't have something that is similar. The innovation funding economy is very small or in other jurisdictions around the world, the innovation funding is typically associated to an academic institute, you know, and there are benefits to all of it. But all that I'm saying is, is, is that in the Canadian ecosystem, we don't have that, and we're having these huge successes because we've got Canadians going across the border now to sell the products that are built here. The only thing that is unfortunate is our venture capitalist market is very risk-averse. So, you know, when you look at the Series A companies to, you know, sort of Series B, there aren't that many opportunities for bringing in Canadian investment. So most Canadian companies look to the U.S., and U.S. companies recognize, they're like, okay, you know, the Canadian innovation ecosystem is really good. They seeded them really well. So now let's look at opportunities across the border in the Series A to Series B range because there's a bargain here. There's a discount here that we didn't have to invest in from a government perspective, but now we can invest in from a VC perspective. So Canada, the, the governments are, are more uh, innovation friendly or, you know, working more directly private public sector operations while in the US the, the VCs are the ones that are unlocking these these opportunities so it seems like there's there's a lot to learn from both sides of the of the border Imran let's give you a magic wand to your city of Toronto if you could change one aspect or solve one problem in your city uh, what would it be mm, I think I would change the regulated environment so that it includes an environmental mandate and the reason why I say this is because you know, everything 
from a regulation of electricity perspective is about make it the cheapest for all the consumers. And it's about price protection. But, you know, the cost of the environment isn't factored into it. And I wish we could update the way we think from a regulated perspective, because it would change then and trickle down everything that we do, you know. And, you know, I, I wish I could say, I, I thought about saying something along the lines of, you know, oh, I wish everyone could understand the opportunity in electricity so they start to invest in it. But that's like, you know, uh, someone someone saying, you know, you should know everything about an electron before you think about why you turn on the light. That's not feasible, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, understanding that your regulator is out here to protect you from an environmental perspective as well and then helps drive programs that will then drive adoption will make such a big difference. So I wish we could start at the top. Absolutely. No, it sounds like the, you know, the conversation there is around short-term gains that will translate to people's savings in their pocket or long-term gains for the environment and for the community as a whole. Imran, what's, uh, let's enter that discomfort zone for a little bit. Uh, what's something that you've changed your mind about uh, recently? Uh, you know, a perspective that you changed your mind about uh, and, and how did you go about it? A perspective that I changed my mind about recently is actually diversity. I think it's really, really important as a lens for everything that you do. So, you know, I know that we live in a diverse world. I know that there are many different types of people and you want to get, you know, everyone bringing their authentic self to do everything that they do. But that thinking actually needs to expand in basically every facets of your life. And, you know, it's funny, I was just thinking about it from a micro perspective. I wore a different color sweater the other day and it was it was like a mustard color sweater. And everybody commented when I was on virtual calls, they said, oh, it's a lovely sweater. And I compared it to wearing a white shirt, of which I own 40, by the way, you know, because I do come, you know, sort of with this old baggage of, you know, how you should dress at work and things. And, you know, just having that standard uniform is also an indication of a lack of diversity or a lack of diverse thinking. And wearing a sweater, as simple as that, really allowed people to talk about and express themselves in a diverse way. Now, let's expand that to the problem I just talked about, you know, which is I wish someone would understand an electron before they thought about their usage. Well, really, no one needs to do that, but there are services that can be done. It's really about language translation, right? Like if you think about diversity, the grid speaks in a language, the building operator speaks in a language, the engineers speak in a certain language, the hardware OEMs speak in a different language. And you can't just expect that all of these people are going to come together. That's a lot of diversity that needs to come together. So really, you know, when I, I started to think about it, I'm like, this is the same problem. It's just everyone speaking a different language. It's a diversity problem, you know? And so the software algorithms are not about like optimizing for economic and environmental benefit. It's about optimizing for different languages. And I started to take an equity diversity lens to really like everything I do now, you know, and it is fundamentally changing the way I eat. It's fundamentally changing the way like I wake up in the morning, you know, and I didn't think it would have such a profound impact on my life, but I'm really liking this journey now. And it was definitely a big change in thinking just from a year ago. So interesting. Uh, yeah, the micro diversity or, or you can call it the uh from superficial diversity from what we wear to uh, you know how we work and who we work with and also putting into words you know or translating as you said to to the relevant stakeholders right not everyone needs to know what a what an electron is but it's uh, everyone likes to have uh, cleaner energy because they'll pay less in the long term or 
um, yeah, fascinating. I, I have not heard of that perspective. I love it. Imran, where can listeners learn more about you and Peak Power? Uh, yeah, so peakpowerenergy.com is our website. And, uh, you know, we're active on LinkedIn as well. We've got uh, we've got a really wonderful marketing team, honestly. I, I'm just so impressed by them. So if you follow us, Twitter, if you follow us in the news, there's quite a bit of activity uh, and we're quite active. So, you know, reach out as well if you have any questions and also reach out if you just want to nerd, you know, if you want to if, if you want to nerd on energy topics as it pertains to the real estate sector, we're always happy to have conversations. You know, I have a lot of REITs reaching out and just asking, you know, like, hey, I'm thinking of putting a, um, a lighting control system should i do it and you know i might not know the details of it but i can tell you whether it's going to be able to uh, generate revenue or not you know so definitely happy to field questions like that uh, even if it's not doing business with us obviously absolutely and those links can be found in the episode description below uh imran rani chief strategy officer and co-founder of peak power uh leading the revolution the clean energy revolution thank you so much for coming to tangent today it's been a great conversation yeah, Edward, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Tangent and share this episode with a friend. This season is edited by Katarina Silva and is produced by me, Edward Cohen. Thanks for listening to Tangent and remember, collaboration is our superpower. So stay curious and always be learning.